0: I am so pleased to be here this evening as we complete the series on health emergencies of climate change and to wrap up the six-week discussion that we've had, and tonight also to talk about my field of of expertise, the mental health and uh, psychiatric consequences of climate change. I will be sharing the presentation tonight with Alex Trope, my colleague, who is finishing his residency here at UCSF. He's been engaged with climate change issues and health for years, going back to his medical student days and has been a co-founder and on the steering committee with me of Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Climate Psychiatry Alliance is a group of psychiatrists addressing the mental health and psychiatric aspects of climate change with an educational and advocacy focus. But just to review where we've been for the last six sessions, We've looked at the health emergencies developing with climate change. We've also had a prediction of how heat is expected to increase over the decades. We've had an evening where we looked at the emergency department, um, particularly during heat extremes. We then had an opportunity to see skin in the many ways our skin protections are impacted by climate change. We also looked at the interface between COVID and climate change, an issue that is on all of our minds and of great concern. We then went into a, a look at how climate change impacts the life spectrum and saw this for many different developmental phases. And last week, we looked at how we breathe, the air pollution impacts and allergens, but tonight we're looking at the mental health and emotional experiences of climate change. So this map shows the regional distribution throughout the United States of climate disasters that impact our health. What I want to point out to you is the mental health impacts are in every single region. That little distressed man with his head in his hands, uh, the green little icon, well, it's, it's everywhere except Alaska, and I'll suggest to you that the only reason it's not there is because Alaska is too small to fit, fit two icons, because Alaska is uh, definitely a place of great emotional consequences. Alaska is one of the places with the most extreme heat changes in the United States. Seawater warming has profoundly affected their vital fishing industry. And the Inuit Native people's ability to remain on their homelands, which have been their place for decades, hundreds of years, is threatened. And they are facing the prospect of their entire community being forced to relocate. And that is just one of two communities that are completely uh, slated to be moved in the United States proper. The mental health impacts are like a large umbrella under which each of the the health consequences occur. It is because we experience our body and our world through our thoughts and our emotions. And even though we may have a vector-borne disease or a trauma, uh, uh, an illness related to uh, mental health consequences or trauma related to floods or whatever, It is through our feelings that we experience our health and our illness. I want to show you an organization by which uh, Alex and I think about the mental health impacts of climate change. And this is just an organizational uh, way that we're approaching the material. Tonight, it's just gonna be a primer. We have, uh, but I want to now turn this over to Alex we will talk about the slow-moving disasters, those impacts that occur over months, years, decades, that include drought, air pollution, land loss, uh, and many other things, and the emotional consequences to those.
1: Thank you, Robin. Uh, I wanna thank uh, Osher Mini Med School, UCTV, uh, Robin herself for being such a great colleague, mentor, friend um, in this uh, admittedly tough subject. Um, I think that the idea of breaking it down has always been helpful, um, giving us six kind of pockets to place uh, our different um, forms of distress and our different ideas uh, when it comes to our mental health and functioning and uh, climate change. So our first component, slow moving disasters, it's not a technical term, but it helps to give a flavor of a certain type of disruption, climate disruption, um, that when it occurs on the level of years to decades to centuries, Um, brings in unique facets and how we analyze uh, the health consequences of that. And most of all, the further out, uh, the the longer something takes and the longer it has to take place, the more wide ranging the social, demographic, economic and emotional consequences of these, but also the more subtle um, and hard to pin down often. When we think about climate change, uh, oftentimes the most foreboding uh, effect is this idea of sea level rise, which for some communities already a look out the window reality as uh, Robin was saying with Inuit, people living in uh, New Orleans um, uh, bywaters and other places. Uh, and I, we could have a whole section on any one of these components and any component with, there within. But in terms of sea level rise, it's this fear of permanent land loss not just ecological degradation that might be rejuvenated in some way. It's the idea that we uh, are slated in this century to lose uh, large areas of habitable arable land Um, in many different forms, one of these forms being along the coastline. And these are various pictures, one taken uh, during kind of clear blue sky, um, king tide flooding in Miami, actually inundating a hospital there as well as uh, a map showing the relative risk of displacement of communities in different uh, coastal counties, up to 50% of people at risk in certain areas. And then closer to home here in San Francisco, we have pictures of how sea level rise and more uh, potent storms uh, in certain coastal areas where there's lots of risk of sea erosion or already seeing um, whole, Housing complexes, buildings, houses, other places fall into the ocean, literally or else be condemned um, as the coastline becomes unstable um, and lastly, a picture just of uh, where we might be if there aren't any emissions reductions uh, in fifty seventy years, um, given sea level rise and the you know kind of un uh, unarguable physics of uh, warming water and melting ice on our earth the Slow-moving disaster I want to focus on more uh, intensely here are droughts, which we have said are slow-moving. They usually develop over the course of years, although there are now ideas of of flash droughts in areas where um, water is not available at its usual levels within weeks. Um, But they also set the preconditions for many other types of subsequent disaster in agriculture, in uh, landslides, in fires, and all these things. And so um, they're important and uh, they play a role on impacting people directly through um, rises in psychological impacts of seeing the land around you change and degrade. Um, Anxiety, depression, hopelessness, uh, especially amongst people closely yoked to the land, farmers, farm workers, uh, indigenous and traditional cultures, that know the land well, are also the most attuned to its changes during things like uh, drought. And as these changes take place, people are forced Uh, away from their ancestral homelands or away from their uh, farmlands, often pushed into uh, increasingly urbanized and uh, densely packed areas to eke out a livelihood. And droughts and the consequences of that most uh, acutely, um, food shortages, are often connected to political instability and political mismanagement. Um, So it takes a natural and a man-made disaster to kind of uh, create the uh, downstream effects of drought. And we'll get into this later, but there's also a direct psychological distress of seeing uh, the land around you change. So we wanna take drought um, and build on it to get to the point where we can put uh, these large California wildfires into an ecological context and parable. So we're gonna be focusing on the 2018 campfire, which uh, famously destroyed the town of Paradise, caused over 88 deaths caused uh, tens of thousands of people to have to flee their homes many most the majority of whom have not returned um, and we want to uh, build on that in uh, the years that led up to that um, to give you a sense of how climate psychiatry can be seen in an ecological framework so we'll be returning to this idea of the paradise camp fire um, it's par- parable various times the California drought um, which we've which is, you know, California is a drought prone state, but we saw a massive drought occur between 2011 and 2017, um, was, a, was a stellar example of a slow moving disaster and a precondition for acute disaster. The drought, uh, just between the years of 2011, when it started in 2016, uh, ag- agroforestry estimates uh, say that there's upwards of 100 million trees that died, um, often left standing, desiccated, uh, ready to um, kind of, be lit on fire uh, it, from the smallest spark. Um, it also caused wide disruptions in our famous uh, Central Valley agricultural system with huge layoffs and losses for families, farm workers there. And then it also kind of shot at the heart of California's ecology, which is our Sierra Mountain Range, which I really think of as the quite literally the heart of California, which uh, picks up precipitation, snowpack throughout the year, and then beautifully replenishes our aquifers, our rivers, our um, reservoirs over the course of year and is crucial not only for our agricultural industry but also for our, all our major um, cities which rely on water um, uh, siphon from, from the Sierra. Uh, so just putting that in mind is important to see that uh, years before a fire, the psychological and direct impacts of drought were taking place. I will now uh, hand it over to Robin to discuss something that goes attendant with uh, drought, which is extreme heat.
0: Global heating, which Christy Dahl from the Union of of Concerned Scientists talked about in our session one, uh, was um, something that we looked at. She reminded us that the policies and actions that we do now will shape the inevitable increases in temperature. And that if we reduce the CO2 emissions through our reduction of fossil fuel combustion, we can have an impact on the inevitable heat increases. Global rise in average surface temperature, which defines global warming, is a slow moving disaster. And as such, it is a precondition for the wildfires, one of the acute disasters that Alex will talk about shortly. But extreme heat, heat waves, is an acute disaster in and of itself. There are very specific psychological impacts of extreme heat or heat wave. And remember, what we are talking now are periods of extreme heat lasting over several days over the normal baseline in a community. So this occurs all over in areas where people live in very hot climates already, already, India, Bangladesh, the Middle East, Central South America, um, our East Coast and Southern, uh, Southern part of the United States. And it also include, includes those more temperate climates, like here in Northern California or the Bay Area. It is in that increase in the normal that challenges us both physically and mentally. And the extreme heat impacts have very specific impacts on behavioral and mental health and that includes violence suicide impairments in thinking and insomnia extreme heat makes all of us cranky none of us feel good we're more likely to have temper flares and feel listless so we all know through our colloquial language it expresses this when we speak of being so hot-headed or simmering with anger, or so angry that my blood will boil, or the admonition when someone is getting too feisty to, hey, man, hey, man, fool out. But extreme heat goes way beyond crankiness with significant effects on mental health and behavior, especially for people who already have very fragile and erratic uh, impulse control. And although the factors contributing to this increase in violence are multifactorial, with economic factors including poverty, natural resource restrictions, social norms, political institutions, all contributing, there actually is evidence supporting a direct psychological and neurological contribution with a a plausible hypothesis linking the role of serotonin which is the neurochemical in our brains that communicates uh, the uh, neurons, the serotonin metabolism as a contributing factor. Serotonin levels are known to fall as temperatures rise. And because serotonin is associated with aggressive behavior, it's hypothesized that serotonin depletion can contribute to violent acts under heat stress this graph shows the increase in violent crimes the red line that are associated with daily temperature increases the blue line and there's a 2.6 percent more murders and assaults in the united states during the summer than other seasons of the year and scientific studies show the data that one standard deviation increase in temperature again that increase over the baseline temperatures in communities contributes to a 4% increase in interpersonal violence. This is a particular concern for me for domestic violence and violence against women, as well as there is a 14% increase in intergroup violence. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Additionally, the urban health island effect makes place cities much hotter than the surrounding areas. The impact of the hard surfaces, the concrete and asphalt contain heat. Dense crowded buildings are a contributor and the lack of green planting in inner cities all result in cities being up to 10 degrees hotter compared to adjacent suburban and rural areas. And this may have a contribution to the increases in summer violence in inner cities. On top of this urban heat island effect, conditions of inner city poor who have, have substandard housing and often lack air conditioners, create more suffering and morbidity and mortality for inner city poor. And this um, is uh, is documented actually in a very interesting film, Cooked, Dying by Zip Code, which was put out last year about the Chicago heat wave of 1995. When maps of inner city poverty laid over mortality from the heat waves were exactly the same. Suicide. I consider suicide a kind of aggression turned toward the self. And many studies have looked at the increase of suicide um, associated with increased heat. India and Australia have had epidemic levels of suicide in farmers during the harvest seasons of very hot years. Now, of course, this is probably multifactorial and due to the loss of their income from not being able to produce and protect their families. But a very important study done by a Stanford economic research team attempted to factor out all of the variables that usually contribute to suicide and look at the heat impacts alone. And what they found was that there is a a 0.7% increase in suicide in the United States and 2.1% increase in Mexico. Those were the two places they studied for looking at this. For every one degree increase at uh, Centigrade over the monthly average temperatures. This has profound implications. And the authors estimate that by 2015, assuming that we have no reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and that Assuming is really important, indicating that we might be able to do something about that. But assuming no reduction, there would be an excess of 14,000 suicides in the United States and nearly 7,500 excess suicides in Mexico due to heat alone. This suggests these rates are comparable to the effects of suicide um, on economic recessions, on um, unemployment, and um, wipe out all of the benefits from all suicide prevention programs or gun control. And of course, you can't help but think about also the impact of COVID now on suicide. Um, These have been found across all socioeconomic levels. The impact of extreme heat also is something that affects our thinking, and most of us are not up to doing a lot of complex thinking uh, during these taxing times of heat waves. But scientific evidence once again supports this, showing a range of cognitive function impairments in complex thinking tasks and problem solving and decreased work performance. Concern for safety with the impacts of reduced attention and reaction time in stressed work environments is of great concern. The elderly, again, are particularly impacted with impaired working memory and executive functioning during extreme heat. And and just a caveat. Students at Harvard who live in air-conditioned dorms fared significantly better on exams than students in non-air-conditioned dorms during a 10-day heat wave. And sleeping. We all know that sleeping makes us miserable. But we also know that sleep deprivation is linked to a worse mood, depression, suicidality, That there are increases in manic episodes that can be precipitated in bipolar patients during uh, during, uh, loss of sleep. And I've already mentioned the impacts of not being able to think well. Human well-being suffers without adequate sleep. Normal sleep requires our body to have a slight decrease in temperature in order to fall asleep and sustain sleep. So that sleep, te- so that temperatures, our body temperatures is slightly lower throughout sleep and raises just a little bit before we awaken. Increased ambient temperatures can interfere with this normal thermoregulation of sleep onset and maintenance. So I'm gonna move back to Alex. He's gonna go over the issues of the acute climate disasters.
1: Thanks, Robin. We already reviewed the slow moving disasters and the kind of slow and acute uh, effects of heat, both the slow global temperature um, rise that is global warming and heat waves, which uh, can occur um, in many different areas, uh, both places that are already hot um, uh, environments and places that are just experiencing heat above their normal average. Um, The acute climate disasters that we wanna review Uh, bring us back to our Paradise Campfire parable. So we had the drought 2011 to 2017. We then had some reprieve uh, through a atmospheric river of lots of rain coming in 2017 and into 2018. That was great for giving the land water. It also meant that the underbrush in our uh, Sierra Nevada and other places uh, was given the chance to really grow, grasses and other things. Unfortunately, that uh, combined with other factors uh, led to a huge increase in wildfire risk during that time. And the campfire set off by um, some public uh, electric utility work in the area um, just caused a massive conflagration that we've already gone through in terms of the amount of losses, uh, uh, both economically and um, in terms of uh, human community. And I, Want to go through this kind of acute disaster, has been studied by disaster specialists and psychologists for a long time. And they've come together uh, in the evidence to show how we respond psychologically. There tends to be a typical and predictable phases of acute disaster. So there's the pre disaster phase, often where the preconditions are set up over decades and years. And then the impact of whatever the disaster or crisis might be from COVID to a wildfire. There's weeks uh, or days of kind of heroic efforts ramping up to respond to this unforeseen event. And uh, oftentimes people describe a a sense of community cohesion so great that it really creates that even though that there's untold suffering and trauma happening, this, this sense of a honeymoon, of something shifting and our better angels coming to the fore. And then over the course of weeks and years, uh, there is a predictable diminishment in that uh, kind of uh, motivated feeling. um, And there's often a long period of disillusionment. particular graph is giving it up to one year but it can it's different for all individuals there's vicissitudes in the way that we feel about the uh, disaster and and the post-disaster circumstances and then slowly over the course of years usually given uh, large crises there's reconstruction in which people in the community work through their grief work through their losses and build anew Um, and it's important to know this uh, because it's a way to counsel people going through disaster also, in the aftermath, both acutely and post acutely, there's a variety of well known psychological and behavioral responses to disaster. There are the direct feelings, as Robin has stated, feelings are the way that we feel into our sense of health and well being. So, anxiety, panic, depression, uh, grief. And then there are the behavioral responses in which uh, People take up, often fall back on uh, things that give them short-term comfort: smoking, alcohol, workaholism. Sometimes that uh, the heroicism of uh, that honeymoon period can actually lead to burnout and uh, overwork um, in the months after. Changes in travel, in socialization, and in feeling separated, both from loved ones and from loved places. Um, And then for a subsample, uh, a subset of people. Um, Many people respond to this, have distress, might change their health risk behaviors, but they don't actually lead into psychiatric disorders, um, such as generalized anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and complex grief, but it's well-known epidemiologically that those disorders do increase in a subset of people. And overall, this really strains our healthcare delivery system, not only in the place directly, such as Paradise, but in all the places that people might uh, seek refuge and flee to after a, a disaster. And in the post-disaster period, there was a lot going on directly in Paradise where the campfire had happened. But remotely, uh, there were uh, big changes in the city in which we live, uh, San Francisco. There was a wildfire smoke period unlike anything we'd ever seen um, with nearly two straight weeks of dangerous air quality, um, everyone wearing face masks in the same way we are wearing for COVID now, but being able to directly see the, the um, kind of culprit in the sense of blocking out the sky, of making uh, breathing um, you know, directly uh, toxic. And uh, we recorded really high numbers of these particular air particulate matters, which I want to get into. John Baum's already presented on this um, in a previous session on wildfire smoke, so I won't uh, beat it to death. But I also want to reference Mary Williams talking about dermatological impacts of climate change. Um, she called pollution, air pollution, carbon pollution, the fellow traveler to climate change. And I really like that image that, um, yes, there's climate change, greenhouse gases, and then there's lots of fossil fuel pollution that is in greenhouse gases, but it's still toxic um, to our health um, and uh, impacts vulnerable communities, especially. So just reviewing this information, you can kind of Uh, categorize air pollution by the size of the particle, coarse particles, uh, fine particles, and ultrafine particles, which can all travel different distances, some of them thousands of miles, some of them just locally in the community, and they're all smaller than um, a strand of hair. That's shown here in this left-hand image. and there is in particular the unregulated ultrafine pollutants, so the EPA and others do not regulate the smallest below 2.5 uh, micrometers, microns. Uh, but we know that all these different levels can cause uh, neuroinflammation, the inflammation of the brain and nervous system. And this right hand image shows three pathway, uh, suspected, suspected pathways for that. The first is that we have actually a part of our brain hanging out in our sinus, uh, these free nerve endings of our olfactory bulb, uh, bulb, which sense uh, chemicals in the environment and give us the sense of smell, they actually give a pathway in which very ultrafine pollutants can access the brain directly. And then we have immune cells in our brain uh, that mount uh, an inflammatory response. Second way is that within those nasal passage and oropharynx passages, um, those also directly communicate with parts of the brain um, and can uh, seed the brain with kind of inflammatory Uh, uh, molecules and signals. And lastly, very importantly, those ultrafine and fine particles get past the protections of our airway, enter our lungs, and can actually enter directly into our bloodstream because they're small enough that they kind of work on the order of oxygen and carbon dioxide and other things. They slip into our bloodstream and create a systemic response of inflammation that also gets red and uh, affects the brain. And this idea of neuroinflammation or brain pollution, um, uh, neuroinflammation caused by air pollution, has many, uh, is a a rapidly evolving uh, base of scientific evidence and it's linked to a variety of neuropsychiatric health outcomes. Um, some of those uh, affect across the lifespan from smaller head circumference, lower IQs for children, uh, slower processing speed across uh, the timeline, both acutely for people um, directly exposed to air pollution at that time and then uh, having lingering effects even after someone removed themselves from a polluted area, uh, changes in uh, our kind of communication structure of our brain. And then these probably play some role in affecting uh, the incidence of different uh, psychiatric and neurological diseases in highly polluted areas. We've uh, There's links um, that have been studied both here and especially in highly air polluted areas like China, um, that there are links between brain, brain air pollution and ADHD, autism, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, stroke, ALS. Um, dementia and depression, which just recently in our kind of journal of record for psychiatrists, the American American Journal of Psychiatry, showed that in a Chinese population, short-term exposure to air pollution was associated with an increase in hospitalizations for depression. And These are uh, levels of depression that are very severe, often accompanied by suicidality and huge disruptions to a person's personal life or family life, Um, and they were found to be closely linked with the air pollution in China. So we could uh, imagine that possibly the air pollution um, decreases over this shelter in place COVID period uh, might be linked to the inverse of actually lowering the risk of hospitalization for depression during this time. And then, you know, we talked about the kind of post-acute disaster of wildfire smoke lingering in uh, the air and atmosphere here, here, I want to finally finish up this acute disaster period by saying that, you know, acute disasters also have these, this huge long recovery and disillusionment period in which uh, the losses are kind of tallied and dealt with, um, which in Paradise was a huge amount of buildings, a huge amount of displacement, homelessness for people and losses uh, um, just materially that were uninsured, mostly for individuals rather than the companies and, and other uh, industries in that area. Um, and these dis- disaster responses are what we have to deal with as we then deal with knock-on um, acute disasters occurring. And this is the kind of burden of climate change is that you're trying to recover from other acute disasters as it's new ones come in and they overlap and they challenge various types of uh, systems. Um, but especially we um, focus on the healthcare delivery system here and the mental healthcare delivery system. So we've gone through three components. Uh, I just wanna take a very short break to remind us that this is a heavy subject. This is a lot to take on. I really appreciate everyone taking this course. And uh, we're gonna shift into discussing our own personal and psychological responses to this and ways to get out of the doom and dread that often um, uh, easily overcomes us in reviewing this topic um, and breathe our way and, and act our way out of it. So if anyone listening now just wants to take a short box breath. This is a technique for kind of cooling and and calming the nervous system. And it relies simply on taking a breath, holding that breath, exhaling, holding again, all on the count of four over and over. So if we can take a big breath over four seconds, hold, release over four, hold again, And you can continue to do that, but this kind of box breathing, all sides being the same, four seconds, I find really helpful, and I actually find very helpful to do when I'm uh, engaging a topic like this, going onto news sites, creating a uh, a presentation like this. Uh, It's a good reminder for me that I'm taking on a lot of uh, information that can cause my own psychological um, inflammation and emotional inflammation to take place. so I wanna move on to the fourth component, which is this idea of eco distress, which has a lot of different names. It's kind of a, uh, a tower of Babel in terms of uh, different things refer, uh, being referred to. Um, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that um, our ecological shifts are creating uh, psychological responses. And there's a variety of ways to refer to this, as I said, there's psychological defenses, there's new syndromes being postulated, there's a wide range of emotions and feelings that come up. I think the most important thing is to know that we're not alone. If you've ever experienced this, uh, you know, we've gone through decades of climate denial, but currently we are kind of post-denial, I would say, in in a, a very important sense. The average citizenry in a in a poll said that upwards of 70%, the majority believe climate change is happening. The majority believe that it's human-caused. Higher than even the majority that believe it's human-caused are worried about it for whatever uh, reason. And uh, up to 20%, one of five people, is very worried in the sense that it uh, affects their daily thinking and, um, and emotional well-being. And uh, the... Different ways you can respond to climate are the ways you can respond to any distressing experience. And so we're not attempting to memorize or create some new diagnostic system, but a graph like this just shows us that there are a variety of psychological reactions and experience that have been described both in our psychiatric literature, in uh, popular media, and in um, just social media of people uh, in, in different networks that describe what it feels like to um, face up to climate disasters and climate change awareness uh, both directly and indirectly through the mediation of uh, internet and news and all those things. One book I wanna bring our attention to that had a really great uh, image that helped to put um, some of what happens when we psychologically download climate change into our being uh, is this book uh, by a Nordic, Uh, Academic called What We Think About When We Try Not To Think About Global Warming, uh, which really describes psychological defenses that are used to manage uh, eco distress. And psychological defenses are well described. They go back to Freud and uh, a lot of early psychoanalysts. And they're actually survival mechanisms, but they can sometimes be maladaptive when they don't allow us to fully process and move through the distress of, vast changes or day-to-day changes connected to climate change. Um, And he creates this kind of, I call it the wedding cape of the six Ds, where a climate message or a climate disaster or any kind of climate information, a packet of information that comes to you directly and indirectly, often has to go through these layers for people to really take on the significance of it. One is psychological distance, both in time and space, thinking it's not going to affect me because I'm not near it, or it's not going to affect me because it's not now. There's also doom, which often comes in where people accept the kind of severity of the situation but say that it can't be changed and just feel this sense of doom or dread. Then when there's some action, there's often dissonance whereby people feel like they're taking actions, but they also know some of their other consumer actions are contributing to fossil fuel combustion and to climate change and ecological degradation. And finally, there's denial, which is a huge topic uh, that doesn't just mean outright denying something. There's also facets of denial called disavowal, um, which I know that I experience all the time, where I know the truth of something but i continue to hold it at arm's reach to say this doesn't apply to me not to here not now i won't be affected by it and even if those defenses uh are kind of uh are are overcome essentially uh are still the last thing to be overcome which is identity which is that global warming and climate change has become a political um and uh Cultural identity for people accepting it or not accepting it when it is just a, a at its base a physics problem related to greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. Um, and if your identity and your cultural set uh, does not seem to agree with that, or it, you would be giving up your identity by really um, accepting climate change and moving to the action phase of what to do about it, that's going to be a big block. And lastly, uh, I think one syndrome uh, does uh, bear mentioning here, which is this uh, syndrome first described by Australian researcher during one of their very epic droughts in which he went and described uh, rural um, land, landkeepers and farmers feeling this real sense of homesickness when they were still at home in the Australian outback. Um, and he named it solastalgia, seeing your uh, livelihood and the land you know might, might have grown up on change so drastically during drought or any other disaster, created this sense whereby there was a place of comfort becomes a place of pain. So it, this word is Latin for uh, solaceum comfort, along with pain, uh, the Greek word for pain. And I think that's important to notice. Um, for me, it brings up the uh, Joni Mitchell line from Big Yellow Taxi, or song Big Yellow Taxi, that they pave paradise and put up a parking lot. I haven't necessarily experienced a drought on a farm, but I have seen many of my beloved places that I grew up on kind of paved over or turned into other forms of uh, development. So moving out of this kind of phase, accepting that we have eco, that many people have eco distress, that patients, clients, family members, um, will come um, in with this or might be experiencing it uh, kind of in the periphery. There are many ways to manage eco distress and they actually are very similar to the way that a lot of people are managing their COVID related distress currently, which is that you need to get the right rest, which central to that is the right sleep. You need to find restorative actions and places where you can not just work, but also restore your energy. Oftentimes a good way of doing that is setting very strict routines and sticking to them so that you know that you're going to have a restorative and restful time in your day. Uh, There's relaxation generally, which means kind of actually relaxing a little bit of uh, uh, necessarily hitting all your marks all the time. And then recreation and relationships, which uh, oftentimes for people who might be experiencing eco distress means finding, recapturing their relationships with uh, the outdoors, with nature, with gardening, with other places where uh, they connect to what's still going well in the natural world, which there are plenty of examples um, throughout um, local communities for that. When you get those R's right, you get stress resiliency, um, and it allows us to move through uh, various forms of stressors and acute acute, and, and long-term um, slow-moving disaster to be resilient over the course of weeks, decades, centuries um, as communities. So now I'm going to turn it over to Robin to discuss uh, what is also very helpful, um, cognizance, which is that oftentimes people taking classes like this or just, you know, describing are not actually in the most vulnerable set. And we have a lot of our power can be uh, put towards advocating for um, those communities.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. Um, And uh, he's so so right. And actually, I'm going to refer back to what Tom Newman said at the very beginning in the first session, that we're all going to be impacted by climate change, but not equally. And we in the health sector focus on what we call social determinants of health. Those aspects in our society that have an impact on what we call health disparities. These are the populations of special concern, and the, but this is not limited solely to those. Those who live on the land, like I already talked about with the Inuit, in, uh, Native people, who are who see the greatest changes right in the places that they live, um, the elderly and disabled, of course, particularly the frail elderly, um, who are often dependent on others and sometimes machines, and are jeopardized during crisis. And the people who are very isolated, first responders and other workers who are exposed to the traumas of extreme heat or the traumas of those acute disasters. And we're now particularly focused on the impacts for COVID on our healthcare workers and other vulnerable populations. It's the same kind of uh, situation. Outdoor workers who cannot protect themselves from exposures during extreme heat, our particular vulnerable group, and um, postpartum, the poor, who have very limited access to resources for protection and response, pregnant and postpartum women and children. And we saw that as we talked about the impacts across the life spectrum. And for heat exposure, we shouldn't forget our student athletes. Now the impact of climate change can be viewed across a spectrum from the most vulnerable to, the, to resiliency. And population vulnerability is a function of the hazards, the vulnerability of a particular exposed population group, and the resiliency of individuals, communities, and governments to identify and respond to outbreaks and and repair. The three major determinants are outlined in this graphic, exposure vulnerability, It's the degree to which a community is susceptible to climate-related events. Exposures are dependent on local climate effects. Things don't happen the same everywhere. So storm surges, sea level rise, extreme heat droughts. Some regions will be overwhelmed by these effects, and others will be much less severely impacted. And there, of course, changes just in the micro levels of where one lives in a community, like what I described about the heat island effect, or if you live in a floodplain or a drought-exposed area population sensitivity is the degree to which an individual or community are impacted by climate effects. So age, race, ethnicity, income, occupational, mental, or physical health, or disabilities all play a part in this. These are the social dimensions that we consider multipliers of health impacts. And climate change will reinforce and amplify The current socioeconomic disparities, leaving low-income, minority, and politically marginalized groups with fewer economic resources and more environmental and health burdens. The adaptability capacity refers to a community's ability to anticipate, cope, and resist and recover from the impact of extreme heat. So individual and communities' abilities to respond to the consequences and take advantage and adjust to the hazards. Weak economies and weak governances, places where education and healthcare are woefully inadequate, whereas where corruption is entrenched, all make communities and local governments ill-prepared to cope with the effects of climate change. And need I draw any connection with COVID at this time? But inversely, the communities where there are tight social cohesiveness, where neighbors know each other and look out after each other and lean on each other can be much more resilient. I would be remiss as a psychiatrist to not mention that the mentally ill and those with substance abuse are a very vulnerable population. And this is a group of people with much higher rates of all of the negative social factors and those multipliers and that compounds their risks. And Mary Williams did remind us that medications have an effect on how our bodies and brains Uh, can be impacted by our ability to cool. And this is of particular importance for psychiatric patients because all of the psychiatric medications can impact the ability of a body to cool. So now, check in with your feelings. Alex gave you a breathing exercise, but I want to say to you, you are not supposed to be feeling good. These are very real fits. Threats, very severe threats. And when there is trouble, we're supposed to feel upset and concerned. It is not the upsetting feelings that are problematic. In fact, I'm more concerned about folks who don't feel or upset about these big feelings. It is what we do with those feelings. So now, what do we do? During this course, we've had repeated questions almost every week of what to do, and each presenter has given some suggestions. So I want to end with some thoughts about engagement, action, and how to use your agency. Your agency is the ability to assert yourself, ourselves, and to draw from that place within us where we can have an impact. Rebecca Solnik says this much better than I can. Hope is a sense that the future is not written, that what we will do will help to write it. So using your agency, actively involving yourself, is both a coping strategy for your mental well-being, and it's also a solution to the complex, enormous problems. The sense of agency, is an important way to resist a feeling of helplessness, powerlessness and passivity, that things are and just happen to us. And then to restore a sense of capacity to have an impact on our lives and our worlds. All of these actions, the suggestions that I'm gonna lay out are both preventative and strategies to manage ego distress, the big feelings that Alex looked at, and to actually create solutions in our world and our society. And I would suggest that ways to engage, to decrease our reliance on fossil fuel emissions and decrease CO2 is a, is a preventive health strategy. I'm going to present lots and lots of ideas. This is only a guide and not an exhaustive list but it reflects many ideas. I want to find, I think it is important to find something that will match your own temperament, your own style, talents, interests, time, and to find something to do that is enjoyable and gives you pleasure. But you must resist the temptation to feel that anything you do is too small because of the enormity of the problem. Think of it as a puzzle that any individual puzzle piece, when viewed in isolation, cannot reflect the picture, but contributes to the whole. But this cannot be our response. As citizens, we each have a way to contribute to the solutions. And I think of what we do kind of in a hierarchy from the individual to the community and then to a broader political advocacy. What is it when we think about individual involvement? It's the stuff that we're doing every day for many of us already in our daily lives, like recycling. What we do on an individual basis is important, no doubt, but we have to remember that individual actions add together in the collective to make a bigger impact. But individual actions also set the models for others. It does not in and of itself have the heft to change big policies, but the individual actions are needed. And we're seeing that very much with COVID right now, where we're all wearing masks or we're social distances. Those actions are essential, but they're not enough because we need big policies to address solutions so I wanna shift and just look at some of what those individual actions might be, but as I say, this is hardly exhaustive. The first, the number one thing you can do as an individual that actually has the greatest impact as an individual in decreasing CO2 emissions is to decrease food waste, a major, major problem in the United States. And that comes from the drawback work of Paul Hawkins that um, I referred to a few weeks ago. Diet, reducing uh, the consumption of red meat, and Tom Newman addressed that. What about divesting your portfolio from fossil fuel investments and reinvesting in in a green portfolio? Reducing fossil fuel uh, transportation, less airplane flights. Boy, that hurts me because my kids live far away. Um, And Tom also talked about using a carbon calculator to know how much you use. Switching to active transportation, walking, biking, public transportation, although most of us don't want to get on crowded buses these days with COVID, but an electric vehicle. But we have to recognize that is outside of the possibility for moderate and low-income people. Consider um, solar energy on your home. At the community level. There are also many things to do. Um, and as I said, getting involved is one of the ways to take care of your own feelings. But you can engage with your community. That group involvement goes very far to decreasing the isolation, sharing the burdens with others, sustaining a sense of well-being, and also contributing to solutions. So create cohesive relationships with neighbors. And that builds a strong web of community resilience. Engage in eco-restoration, gardening plots in neighborhoods. This is really important for kids who get, when they start to get involved with nature, it develops that core sense, how important nature is. Impact places where you have leverage. So if you're on an alumni, or if you're a church member, or any group, consider advocating for green sustainable practices, or promoting divestment from from those larger groups' investment in greenhouse, in uh, fossil fuel investments. Speak out, use your voice. Write letters to the editor or opinion pieces to your local paper. Talk to your neighbors, your friends, your family. Share your concerns and worries and hopes and let them know this is important. But this is where the big muscle comes in. Political activism and engagement is the process of joining together to ex- exert our power to have impact on policies. Now, I know politics now is supposed to be dirty and ugly and we're fighting about it, but it's really where our leaders uh Assert policies that make a difference. And I want to remind you that Sherry Weiser spoke of restorative recovery from the COVID pandemic, which are founded in the principles of climate environmental protections as we come out of this COVID, uh, as we emerge out of COVID. The task is to create the policies for emerging out of the pandemic and reshaping our future in sustainable, just, equitable ways. But this means asserting political leverage to influence what will happen. Joining with others is both a way to expand your your effectiveness. It It is where the biggest impacts will have in creating political change. But also, again, it diminishes that isolation. And the one that Alex said, how important it is that we together do this. We addressed early on the most significant thing to do this year is vote, vote, vote. But voting is not the only thing. It is absolutely necessary. But we also have to do a lot more. We have to uh, protect the election and work toward access to polls for everyone. The election process is something to engage in. That make sure that your political leaders who are running for office know what you think by speaking your voice at, at any of the ways to influence them. They care about what, um, about what it is that their constituents think but only their constituents who vote. Further than that, once people are elected, the work is not over. It continues year after year after year. So your political leaders need to know and you and we need to advocate to hold them to climate and just solutions. But this cannot be done alone, and it requires smart, political organizing. I want you to take note of Nancy Pelosi's slogan, don't agonize, organize, as a guidepost. It's the most succinct idea about political organizing and sustaining your well-being. So this is not to read. Don't, don't bother reading all of it. It's too much. I'm providing you with this document, and you can find it on the URL, and it'll be in the chat um, box, and it'll also be on uh, the listing for this course. I've created some of these ideas, and it's just an expansion of my ideas um, about things that you can do. But it also has a long list of groups that you can in- involve yourself groups that involve volunteers in direct action and also the big greens, the groups with experienced lobbying on policies. And one of the particular groups that I work with and where I cut my climate uh, teeth is citizens climate lobby, which is working toward a national legislation on putting a price on carbon with all revenues returned to American families. But again, There are many groups, and this is just a a guide, Um, and I think that there's a way to find a place for everyone because working together in groups is the way for us to create a more sustainable, a just, and an equitable world, the kind of world that we want ourselves, our our children, and our grandchildren to have. And I just want to end thanking Alex and um, the pleasure in doing this with him, thanking all of my colleagues who have spoken over the last six weeks, and also my buddies in Climate Psychiatry Alliance for many of the slides and the thinking. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.